Hello and welcome to Definitions, the podcast where we crack the lid of the coffin on death, dying and all the morbid morsels in between. Before we go any further, halt and take heed. These are your words of warning. I will be discussing topics of a deathly nature that may be upsetting to some, including nuclear warfare, murder and penis thievery. Yes, you heard me. If you're not in the right headspace to get down and dirty with the maggots today, then that's fine. I totally get it. Sometimes you'd rather dig into cake and a good romance novel than a freshly dug grave. Now's the time to save yourself. If you're still here, I'll assume you've got your shovels at the ready and believe me, you'll need them because today I'm asking the question, what is the discovery of witchcraft? In life, there are many opportunities for misunderstanding. Whether it's a crossed wire or a misheard sentence, we have to be aware that we don't always have all of the information. Out of context, even the most simple sentiments or intentions can be warped or disfigured. Take, for example, possibly the worst mistranslation in history. It was July, 1945, the year we now know as the end of the Second World War, but to the men still fighting and the politicians above them, the end was not so clearly in sight. Desperate to turn the tide more in their favor, the Allied forces presented Japan with a choice, surrender or face prompt and utter destruction. The Potsdam Declaration demanded a clear answer and demanded it immediately. Having not yet reached his decision, and when questioned by a reporter, the Japanese Premier Kantaro Suzuki replied with the single word, Mokusatsu. Please be aware, by the way, that I do not speak Japanese and most likely absolutely butchered that. I can only apologize to any Japanese listeners or linguists. In Japan at the time, this word was commonly used by politicians to convey the same sentiment as someone saying no comment in English. But unfortunately, and devastatingly, the Allied forces didn't take it that way. Mokusatsu has a variety of different meanings. Derived from the word for silence, it can also be used to indicate an intention to ignore or to take no notice of. When the international newspapers got their ink-stained hands on this comment, the translation was a little less nuanced. They declared that the Japanese Premier deigned the Allies' ultimatum not worthy of comment. If you're feeling uncomfortable right about now, you're not alone. To even call this a misunderstanding or accident is to grossly underplay the severity of the Allied forces' response. Ten days after the news reported Japan's seemingly blasé and dismissive response, the US dropped the first nuclear bombs on Nagasaki. A single word, heightened emotions and a bad translation leading to the deaths of over two million people. Some things can't be brushed under the rug as a mistake, and though it's horrible to think about it, it's also possible, and entirely probable, that there were those who, 
for curiosity, for retribution, for a surefire way to curb the fighting, wanted to drop the bomb anyway. For those people, the mistranslation or varied meanings of the word only worked in their favour. Sometimes people pick and choose whichever version of the truth works for them. I'm not even sure we always know we're doing it, just acting out of our own realities for our own ends. And today, I want to tell you about a book. A book that is not what it seems, that at first glance appears to be one thing, but which, upon opening, reveals itself as something else entirely. As John Jewell stood before the Queen of England, after four years of exile from his home to the European continent, one can only imagine that he was anxious. Truly, it's hard to put yourselves in the shoes of a Protestant bishop denouncing Catholicism to a royal court that was not so long ago ruled by a Catholic queen, Mary I, who, of course, was also guilty of burning 284 Protestants at the stake over the course of five years for refusing to turn away from their faith. Luckily for John, Queen Elizabeth I was, like him, a Protestant. But John wasn't just there to rail against the continuation of Catholic practices. During his sermon, he raised an even greater threat to the eyes of the court. Witchcraft. During his travels, after returning to England, he was horrified to find that this kind of people, I mean witches and sorcerers, within these last few years are marvellously increased within this, your grace's realm. These eyes have seen most evident and manifest marks of their wickedness. Your grace's subjects pine away even unto the death. Their colour fadeth, their flesh rotteth, their speech is benumbed, their senses are bereft. Wherefore, your poor subjects' most jumble petition unto your highness is that the laws touching such malefactors may be put in due execution. For the shoal of them is great, their doings horrible, their malice intolerable, the examples most miserable. These be the scholars of Beelzebub, the chief captain of the devils. In other words, England had a witch problem. It would be only a scant few years later that the Witchcraft Act, first passed in 1542 but repealed five years later, was reinstated in 1562. And what did the Witchcraft Act do? It made the practice, or accused practice, of maleficium punishable by death. And in a time of superstition and fear, where people literally thought the world was ending and rumours and accusations abounded, God, I wonder what that's like. Not to mention forever being suspicious of your Catholic neighbours and their strange rituals and paraphernalia, one man decided that enough was enough. He didn't like this rule of fear, the idea of this overreaching bogeyman that could raise hell, tempests and hurtful weather and devour and eat young children. No, he didn't, not one bit. So what did he do to fend off the tide of witches? Did he raise an army, beseech the queen for assistance in slaying this most evil foe, call together a meeting of the neighborhood watch? No, of course not. He wrote a book, 
a book published in 1584 that would go on to challenge, encourage and illuminate the study of demonology for the rest of history, the discovery of witchcraft. It wasn't that Reginald Scott, like most of his contemporaries, didn't believe in witches. He just didn't believe in any power other than God. Scott saw the practice of witchcraft as a most literal deception. Sleight of hand, throwing your voice, that kind of thing. But more than that, the belief in something other than the one true Protestant God wasn't just abominable, it was heresy. Scott's main concern was not the supposed pacts and literal satanic ass-kissing that was supposedly going on, but with the fact that anything that turned you away from the righteous path was unholy and went against God, including the Catholics. But if anyone was going to write a 488-page, 16-book, 249-chapter treatise on the trickery of black magic and a further discourse upon devils and spirits with yet another four chapters, as I've already said, it was going to be Reginald Scott. Scott was born in Kent, England, somewhere around the year 1538, at his family's ancestral home of Scott's Hall. He was the eldest son of Richard Scott and Mary Wetternell. From the words ancestral home, you've probably already gathered that Reginald was not one of the great unwashed, though truth be told, bathing habits in the early modern period really weren't that bad. Anyway, our pal Reggie went on to study at Oxford University, but dropped out before completing his degree. And then he married Rich, sat in his library and read a lot of obscure books. Honestly, that sounds like the dream. I'm not even gonna pretend I'm not straight up jealous. And after some reading and thinking and some more reading and thinking and then more reading, some trivial frivolous titles such as, oh, you know, Malleus Maleficarum or Hammer of the Witches, only the most influential book about witchcraft ever written, and a whole bunch of similar light-hearted fluff, Scott decided it was his turn to wade in on the matter. The thing is, Scott's experience of the crime of witchcraft wasn't purely armchair witch-dunking. In his own hometown of Kent, Scott had seen how unfairly biased accusations of packs with the devil could be. The overwhelming majority of those accused were women, and of those women, most were old and poor, uneducated and sometimes unable to put in place a proper defence for themselves. In this period, the party defending their innocence was not granted the same level of judicial support as the claimant, and without the necessary access to information or assistance, all the accused could do was offer up more names in the hope that her sentence would be more lenient. Scott had a strong sense of justice, and the first publication of the book featured Forward's address to local justices and to the reader, trying to appeal to their sense of reason, to see how they were being tricked, not by devils or spirits, but by ordinary people. And as we've already established, the discovery of witchcraft is no flimsy pamphlet but an exercise in the painstaking study on uncovering what Scott saw as no more than the lies and deceit of men. A large portion of the book is taken up in explaining exactly how these conjurings and small miracles work, in order that people may no longer be taken in by them. But as we very well know, 
If something can be taken out of context, snipped off at its roots and spun to fit someone else's narrative, that is exactly what will happen. By the third print run of the book, pages of apocryphal material on magical practices have been added, and the book was floating further and further away from the sceptical intentions of its author and closer to a grimoire, or spellbook. It's not only the Houdini-style, now-you-see-me-now-you-don't style of magicians who were interested, the true believers in dark magic and devils were getting their grubby, Satan-loving mitts all over it too. It was a noble, if Catholic intolerant, sentiment that had pushed Scott to write the discovery, alongside his genuine desire to shine a light on the sexist and classist undercurrents that put society's most vulnerable at risk of a terrible death. Alas, you write a big book about magic and demons and shit, outlining how to do said magic, and not just the kind your weird uncle does where he pulls a 50 pence piece out from behind your ear, and people are gonna take notice. People who, regardless of the author's intent, really did believe that a romp at the crossroads with Lucifer himself would grant them special powers. And honestly, a lot of what we know about beliefs surrounding witchcraft and demonology in the 16th century come from the discovery of witchcraft. In his quest to educate, Scott left nothing out, and I can only imagine, to his great dismay, has been allocated the honour of having brought secular witchcraft from the continent over to England. Like I said before, I think it's important to make clear that Scott really did believe in witches. He did. The difference is his witches were biblical. Witches in the Bible don't share a huge amount in common with crooked-nosed old women who live on their own in the forest. Well, most 20-something women I know's life goal, to be honest. No, biblical witches are tricksters who do not wield any true power. Certainly not over life and death, two domains that to the staunchly Protestant mind belong solely to God. Scott himself uses the example of the Witch of Endor, who features in the Book of Samuel, and uses a powerful talisman to commune with the spirits of the dead. Not only does this break the taboo of magic, but also of necromancy. I think it's an important distinction that the Witch of Endor's power does not come directly from her, but from an artifact that she wields. In Protestantism, talismans or holy relics are seen as base and material and utterly in opposition with the pious sacrificial life that one should lead, so as not to detract from their worship. The Catholic faith, on the other hand, has a long history with the treasuring of saints' relics, sometimes their whole bodies bedazzled with jewels and fine cloth. For some of the most gorgeous photo references of this, I cannot more highly recommend Paul Kudinaris's stunning photography book, Heavenly Bodies. It's easy to see here how Scott could draw a line between what he saw as the wayward religious practices of Catholicism and the outright lies of witches. Only it wasn't the accused who were the guilty ungodly party, it was the witch hunters and politicians who enabled them. Drawing comparisons between devilry and Catholicism is something Scott does throughout the discovery of witchcraft. As impassioned as he was about justice, let it never be said he didn't have his own agenda. For most people living in England in the 1500s, witches 
in the most hellfire and broomsticks way, were real. For those who could read, stories of magic and angels, demons and spirits were just more interesting. Everyone loves a scary story. Despite doing his best to scorn and disprove the claims of the early modern demonologists, the sheer volume and thoroughness of witchy stories and beliefs that Scott cobbled together from his own reading made the discovery a goldmine of contemporary satanic practices and rituals. The book itself is littered with tales ranging from the esoteric to the erotic to the downright bizarre. So I figured I'd share a few interesting tidbits. In The Discovery of Witchcraft, Scott relates not one, but three separate stories about witches stealing penises. These can be found amongst the pages of the first eight chapters of the third book, which he devoted fully to discussions of satanic sex. One of these stories deals with a young man who, after having had sex with a supposed witch, becomes as smooth down there as a Kendall. In order to return to him his manhood, he attacks the girl and strangles her until, hey presto, his dick magically reappears. Each of the stories seem to rely on the illusion of penises either not being where they ought to be or being where they really shouldn't, like up trees in bird's nests. Later in the books, Scott makes the argument that in certain places in the Bible, the word which was a complete mistranslation. He said that the Hebrew word used actually meant prisoner. He goes on to tell the story of a butcher whose main trade, for some reason, was being paid money to remove the carcasses of animals which had starved to death. And I thought some of the things people get monetized for these days were weird. At some point, uh, the guy gets a little bit Birkin hair about it all and starts poisoning more animals to supply his trade and get rich. After being caught, the butcher confesses and is given a death sentence via hot tongs to pull him apart. I'm getting some pulled pork kind of imagery. Ever a man of the people, and which probably would have had 16th century maidens swooning at his feet, Scott's comment on the matter was, we for our part would have killed five poor women before we would suspect one rich butcher. A man after the heart of the Me Too movement, truly. Lastly, I'll leave you with this delightful morsel. After Elizabeth I's death, and King James VI of Scotland's ascension to the English throne, he had experience with a tempest at sea, supposedly whipped at the demonic hands of witches, which set him on a very particular course for the rest of his life. This obsession even led to James writing his own book on witches, Demonology, and unlike Scott, he was a thorough believer in the power of spirits and devils to take shape on our mortal plane. To this end, Scott's scepticism did not please him, and it said that he ordered copies of the discovery of witchcraft to be burned. While this story remains somewhat untraceable, we do know for certain that in 1687, after being found in the possession of Anne Watts, a fortune teller from London, and in the company of certain other possible grimoires, the book was burnt for its association with conjuring and occult practices. Honestly, he couldn't win. Everything can be taken out of context and, once removed, easily misinterpreted or purposefully twisted for personal gain. 
Fortunes are made and wars won and lost on the backs of the way that things are written. Whatever Scott's intention, he put together one of the finest collections of examples of early modern witchcraft. And one thing is for sure, whether you love it or damn it to the fiery pits of hell, the discovery of witchcraft will never be forgotten. So there you have it. I hope you've enjoyed our foray under the dust jacket of one of history's most notorious books. If you're also a lover of dark, strange and possibly cursed literature, join me over on TikTok at Definitions, where I also chronicle and recommend all of my favourite morbid books. If you have any thoughts to share about the podcast or your own impending mortality, drop them in the comments. Reviews and ratings go a long way in helping to get this podcast out there, and I greatly appreciate the support. I want to tell you guys about all this weird stuff as much as you want to hear about it. The more you let me know you're out there listening, the more I'm inspired to delve into the depths of the internet and my local library to bring you these twisted tales. The Definitions podcast is researched, written and read by me, Jasper Chanter, with music provided by Zapsplat. Anyway, chop chop, breaks over, pick that shovel up. That grave's not going to dig itself. Bye bye for now, listeners. Catch you on the other side.